Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, here we are. Again, it's a last-minute deal or no-deal situation. It's a last-ditch dive over the channel and it's the last chance for the Prime Minister to have a showdown in Brussels before we leave the European Union for good. Uh, Or is it? Uh, It feels like we may have been here before. There's a terrible ring of familiarity about it, but fear not, it will still get done. I'm absolutely sure about that. We'll just have to have a few days of uncertainty after the hundreds of days of uncertainty we've had for the last four years. After all, we've come this far, haven't we? Today, we should hear exactly when Boris Johnson is heading east to thrash out the details of our departure with Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, Sorry, von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission. Some people think he might as well not bother. We'll check in with George Pascoe Watson for his take on what is going on. 0344 499 1000. The papers this morning are full of the joys of V-Day and the first COVID vaccine in the world has now been given to 90-year-old Maggie Keenan in a Coventry hospital before the eyes of the adoring media. Unbelievably, the second person to get the vaccine was called William Shakespeare, believe it or not. Uh, We'll be checking in with Professor Hugh Pennington and we'll put your questions to him. So do send them in uh, to us via Twitter or on text to 87222. The main uh, source of people's angst seems to be uh, that if it doesn't stop you from getting coronavirus and it doesn't stop you from spreading coronavirus, what is the point? Well, I think the point is, and I'm going to put this to Professor Pennington, uh, that you don't get it seriously enough to have to go into hospital. So I suppose on that basis, it saves people having to go into hospital. 03444991000. Coming up, we'll find out why First Minister Nicola Sturgeon tried to warn the royals away from a visit to Scotland. Does she think she's the Queen of Scotland or something? And why there is some very good news on the horizon about climate change. It could be that eating crisps and drinking beer will actually save the world. Who threw? Who knew that? 0344 499 1000. And we'll bring you up to date on the cycling story we revealed to you yesterday. Howard Cox is going to be here. Predictably, the usual suspects have objected to our idea of registration for all cyclists and e-scooters. And here's a piece of news uh, which probably won't trouble anyone in the Western world. China has apparently switched on its nuclear reactor, uh, which gets hotter. Wait for it than the sun. There's nothing to worry about there, though, is there? 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, there are many things to be absolutely rejoicing about this morning, but one of them ain't the weather, I'm afraid. There's another freezing fog over the Thames, and I can't see the Tower of London again today. I don't know whether this is going to be something that happens every single week, but it wasn't foggy when I came in this morning. Now, apparently, it is. So uh, if you're looking to go heading off somewhere warm and sunny with palm trees and swimming pools, uh, I wouldn't blame you in the slightest. Right now, though, let's uh, let's talk to George Pascoe Watson, Chairman of Portland Communications, former political editor uh, of The Sun. George, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, um, I have to say, reading the papers this morning and looking at all the headlines about Brexit and last-ditch attempts to get a deal, um, it, all, it all does have a bit of a ring of uh, familiarity about it, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the only good news about it, Mike, is that we genuinely really are in the last chance saloon. This yes. is the end game that we've all been talking about for four years. We've said for a very long time it will come down to the wire and all the ups and downs and the bounces here and the negatives there and the breakthroughs and the cancellations, all of it 
now it comes down to the next uh, few days, possibly next week as well. But I think we're into the absolute closing point and we will know relatively soon what deal we've got. And I agree with you, Mike, I think there will be a deal. Yeah, I mean, I think eventually, um, you know, the Europeans actually probably want a deal more than we do. And I think if that is the case, and Boris Johnson pushes for that, um, then they're going to realise that actually the sooner they get something agreed, the better. Well, you're definitely right. I mean, there are are 27 countries in the EU. Not all of them uh, are standing firm. All of them have a particular reason to have a particular deal with Britain for their own economic reasons. Mm. Uh, And so behind the scenes, we know that Sweden, we know that Germany, we know that uh, some of the Eastern European countries uh, are very eager to cut deals with us for their own economic reasons. You look at Poland, there are more Polish truckers on British roads than there are anywhere else in the European Union, for instance. So everyone's got a reason to do a deal. So there's optimism there. And, you know, in, in the end, Boris Johnson, let's not forget, is somebody who has a track record of pulling off deals at the last minute where other people have said it can't be done. He has, including the withdrawal agreement, been able to pull off deals. Uh, there is also a sense that people like you and I, Mike, have been around for a few years who have seen these things happen. Uh, there is a sense of theatrical organisation and choreography to these things. You ramp up the pressure right up until the last minutes, and then you clinch a deal, sign on the paper, and you move on. I think that's what will probably happen. Yeah. I mean, as far as what's been going on up to now uh, with Michel Barnier and the various sets of talks, both in London and in Brussels, I mean, has anything moved? Because it doesn't seem to me as though anything has. No, I don't think it has. But that's not it is also true to say there could still be a deal. Both of those situations can be true. Right. But the chief negotiators have basically uh, hit their own roadblocks. They can't go any further. They don't have the leeway to go any further. And therefore, it has to now elevate to the leader's. Uh, to make their final decisions. And that's what I've seen many, many times happen in the past. In the end, Boris Johnson has the leeway to do that. Now, of course, he also has to bear in mind that whatever deal he does do has to be um, wearable and livable with by his own Conservative MPs, many of whom will be very uh, queasy about uh, doing too much of a deal. So it's really important that he's whatever he does, he can manage to survive his own side and you know, my old newspaper, The Sun, this morning warning that if he gets it wrong, uh, it could uh, end up with him, you know, paying uh, for his uh, premiership at the next general election. So there's a lot on the table in terms of stakes. Uh, but I think that the negotiators have hit the end of their uh, road. Yes, it would seem so. And as far as the pressure that Boris Johnson is under within Downing Street and within his own party, uh, what, what um, sort of importance should we put onto that in terms of who wants him to get what? Well, it's very, very important because, as I say, any deal has to be sellable back home, A, with the, the voters, uh, our, our listeners who, who uh, in the main voted uh, for to leave, um, and of course, uh, the people who have voted in two successive general elections since then to make sure that that remains Britain's position. So that's the first thing. Conservative MPs uh, on the sort of centre right of, of the Conservative Party very, very keen. Some people are really ultra and they just want to, there to be no deal whatsoever. Then we sort of go back to uh, straightforward tariff-free trade uh, and therefore we can cut deals with anybody around the world. And also that we can say to uh, Spanish or French trawlermen, you can't come into our waters, you can't fish around our shores. Mm. Now, that's a big issue for French and Spanish. Uh, and so some Conservative MPs are telling the Prime Minister to stand absolutely firm. Um, it's not, though, the end of the world, I think, for those people. In the end, the reality of politics means that Conservative MPs need the Prime Minister to be the Prime Minister. They all depend on him uh, for their own jobs. And I think once the deal is cut here, um, the, the, the circus will move on. Some people are ultras. They will continue to, to moan and complain about whatever deal is done. But I think the next thing will happen, Mike, if we look forward, is that in January we will see the impact of our actual leaving of the EU. And we will see things like queues at border crossings and we will see changes to the things that we've taken for granted for the next 40 years. And I'm not saying they're wrong, but I'm saying that some people will focus their attention on those things. And that will be a reason to say we should never have left. But of course, the critical thing for this government is to make sure that we can cut deals, not just with Europe, but also the rest of the world, and that we can create the most advantageous and attractive place 
for people to do business and to be Britain at the center of a global British effort so that people want to invest in this country, that we grow our economy, because growing our own economy is the only way of dealing with our terrible public finances. Yeah. And also, it is very much an, uh, an intellectual kind of game, this, isn't it? Because those people who would say um, we should never have left the European Union are those people who think that the world should be made up of very large organisations, which some smaller countries are part of, uh, in order to create a bigger deal. Whereas those of us who voted uh, to leave the European Union would say, well, yeah, but actually, uh, we don't want to be part of a larger organisation. We want to be part of our nation state, which is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, which will be self-determining and will not have to do what people in Brussels tell us to do, just because that's what you want people in Spain and France and Germany uh, and other parts of Europe to do. We spent far too many years going at the speed of the slowest ship in the convoy, uh, and that means it's held us back. It's been uh, un- uh, unable, really, to write our own rules in the way that would make us the most freewheeling economy in the world. <clears throat> freewheeling economies are not the job-destroying ones. They are not the ones which uh, hold people back. They're the ones where entrepreneurs really want to uh, <clears throat> let human capital flourish for people to grow uh, and become stronger and better and the economy to become stronger and better. That's the kind of economy we want. Uh, and those people who see the European Union uh, as, the, as, the, as the future, big blocks, are ones who want protectionism. And it's a perfectly legitimate point of view. It's not a view that I particularly share, but it is a perfectly legitimate point of view. But there are consequences to that kind of uh, world as well. And, and it means a very protectionist world where nobody really uh, flies ahead as, as they could do in a properly uh, entrepreneurial spirited country. And that's what we're trying to to generate here, one where there's low um, tariffs, one where there's there's no restrictions to to trading, where people have a great idea and they can put that idea and let it uh, grow and build uh, and then hire more people. That's the sort of spirit that we want in this country. One also where our politicians, who if we don't like them, we can kick them out every five years, they get to, to make our laws uh, and therefore we have total control and a proper democracy. It's hard for uh, us to have to live by rules sometimes, which are set by unelected judges uh, appointed by bureaucrats uh, in countries we don't necessarily have Britain, uh, uh, Britain's interests at their heart. Now, I don't say that that, is, uh, that paints me as, a, as a, a massive sort of lever. I just think that that is the real position that many people in this country concluded after 40-plus mm. years' uh, membership of the EU. Uh, and I think we're going to see hopefully a very exciting, flourishing Britain, uh, being able to stand free uh, and and to do deals with the rest Mm. of the world, uh, which will impact our economy in a really, really positive way. Also, looking at the way that the European Union has conducted itself since the referendum result um, has been a great kind of, um, shall we say, uh, opening of the door into the European Union to discover exactly what goes on there. Because what they've done uh, is to try and stand in the way of it. What they've done is to try and persuade other people in the country to somehow um, lobby against those people who voted to leave uh, and to right up until the last minute scupper any kind of a deal uh, that would be useful for Britain to have. So, you know, they've shown anyone who might be sort of sitting on the fence that actually staying inside this ghastly organization would be far worse than leaving it and and also um what's never been talked about and i used to talk about this and try to get people to tell me what would happen in the future you know nobody who wanted to stay in the european union could ever tell me uh, what would happen to the eu in 10 years time where would we be with it you know how big would it become how many other countries uh, would it try and adopt and would we see any more of the sort of overreach that they did into ukraine which resulted in a lot of people dying Well, we know that the stated aim of the European Union is ever closer union. And if you take that to its logical conclusion, it effectively means one giant state with one uh, government, uh, one tax policy, one size fits all. Mm. And that's, I think, a pretty damaging place to be because different countries, different populations, different economies, uh, different geographies can't all squeeze happily into, into one size and that was ultimately going to be the biggest problem for the european union i can't fault uh brussels and the commission for the way that they have responded to to britain's decision to leave it's inevitable they their their interest is in preserving the european union that's what they that's their job Uh, and of course uh, if it looks as if britain can 
waltz out of membership without any pain, then what's to stop other countries who might feel similarly tempted to say, well, there's there's no pain, there's only gain, let's also leave. And then, of course, that leads to the destruction of the European Union. So if, I'm, I'd be surprised if they weren't trying to make it difficult for us. But it does show that the, the heavy politics that any government of this country, be it Labour or Conservative, uh, have had to deal with uh, over the last 40 plus years. Uh, and I hope that what it means is that we can now find our own feet and make our own way in the world, not at all being enemies of the European Union or its states, continuing to work pragmatically and successfully with those countries as well. Now, uh, let's just talk roughly about the domestic situation, George, before we let you go. Uh, Prime Minister's questions tomorrow. Keir Starmer apparently doing it from home because uh, he's self-isolating again. I was saying earlier, these politicians don't seem to be very good at avoiding coronavirus uh, in terms of uh, Boris Johnson being 14 days in his own uh, building. Now Keir Starmer not able to come into the House of Commons. Um, Labour seems to be kind of all over the place at the moment on everything. What's going on with them? Well, Labour have had uh, a very interesting couple of months, difficult couple of months, uh, having to deal with the uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, anti-Semitism stuff when the, the Labour Party rightly uh, took action around that. And I think he has, has done the right thing in, in that territory. Uh, anti-Semitism was a terrible blight uh, for the Labour Party and it's going to take some time uh, for it to get rid of uh, that element, which it should surely do. Um, but the Labour Party are actually currently, I think, strategically waiting and watching this government, the Conservative government, dealing with Brexit. Because, in a sense, when your enemy is in trouble and having difficulties, you don't need to do very much. You just let them continue to have their difficulties mm. and let them hog the headlines. So I think strategically, Keir Starmer's point is, let's let Boris and his uh, government struggle through this very difficult moment. Uh, because it's hard for the Labour Party to take a very, very clear view on what's going to happen when, of course, they don't know and we don't know what deal is going to be done. So I think the Labour Party are low, low right now and trying to just let the Conservative Party struggle through its difficulties on its own. Yeah. There's no real reason for it to play a shot, as it were. It wouldn't take Nostradamus, though, to predict that whatever happens, Sir Keir Starmer will stand up in the House of Commons in a month's time and say, well, we should have done that earlier. <laughs> Yeah, well, absolutely, he'll do that. I mean, as any opposition leader would do. I've been saying for a long, long time we should have done this, and now the Prime Minister's following us. Prime Minister had a good pop at him last week, of course, uh, and, and that uh, keeps the Conservative backbenchers happy. They know that their leader is having a good uh, day out against the opposition leader. These things matter uh, because Conservative MPs need to go uh, back to their constituencies feeling that the boss is in charge and he's got the measure of the of the other leader. So it does matter. Um, and of course, uh, Boris is very, very quick-witted on these things. But of course, the Prime Minister's focus right now, and particularly tomorrow, will be on these Brexit negotiations. I don't think he's uh, got anything else on his, on his mind other than dealing with uh, uh, the, the European Union and fixing that deal. No, quite. George, thank you very much indeed. George Pascoe Watson, Chairman of Portland Communications, former political editor of The Sun. Uh, very much uh, very much a Brexit sort of week, this. But of course, uh, the COVID-19 problem hasn't gone away, uh, but the government will be seeing it as a relatively good week for them as they have unveiled V-Day today. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So this morning we were uh, shown uh, all of the uh, the media in the world sitting around in Coventry Hospital uh, filming a 90-year-old woman from Northern Ireland, Maggie Keenan, uh, being given the first uh, COVID vaccine in the world, looking very happy about it, telling everybody else that they should do the same. She's a grandmother of four. Uh, the thing about the vaccine is this. It doesn't appear to stop the spreading of it. It doesn't appear to stop the individual from getting it. But what it does do uh, is it stops the individual from getting a too serious a dose of it, which presumably means they don't have to go to hospital. Let's talk to Professor Hugh Pennington up at Aberdeen University and see if that's the point of it all. Hugh, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed. Is that basically the point of it? Because that's kind of what I'm taking from this. You know, we're told that, you know, it's 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 not a vaccine in the traditional sense where it sort of gives you a bit of the virus, thereby giving you the antibodies. It gives you something which helps you to form antibodies, um, which then makes sure that if you get coronavirus, it's not going to be a life-threatening dose if you like that's right that's right i mean what what, what this vaccine the uh, has, has got a bit of the the message that makes the spike protein and we're all familiar with pictures of the virus with these with these spikes sticking out it makes the spike we make the spike protein 
and, um, and, th and then that stimulates the production of antibodies against it, which stops the virus really causing uh, big uh, mischief to people. You know, it'll, it'll protect your lungs and your kidneys and all the other organs that this virus um, very easily infects because the receptor for the virus is on all these organs. It's on blood vessel lines and so on. Because it's not a single pneumonia that you get. You get a pneumonia very often with the shortness of breath and all that kind of thing. And then you get other, other organs affected. And that's why people have such a hard time with the virus, apart from the lung. Of course, for some people, that's enough. Right. Um, and it stops that sort of general infection. It, we don't really know whether it stops the virus in the nose and throat, where it, you know, it starts off. Mm. Uh, time will tell whether you know, the antibodies will stop the virus growing there. You know, it's possible that might be the case as well. We'll have to wait and see. Are, because are, are you one of those, Hugh, that is uh, of the opinion that the virus, in terms of its kind of density, if you like, and its, and its, and its threat, is not quite as bad as it was back in March and April? Well, I don't think there's any really, really good evidence about that. I mean, the main, I suppose the only good news is it doesn't seem to be good. I've got any worse. I mean, some, some people will think, oh, it'll mutate and it'll get worse. Mm. It'll get hotter and so on. We, we know the virus mutates. It mutates um, not anywhere near as well as flu because it has a sort of proofreading mechanism uh, in the way it grows. And it, 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 it eats out most of the mutations, whereas flu doesn't do that. So, you know, that's another piece of good news if you like but it does mutate and we know that coronaviruses can change very often actually they've changed for the better in mm. the sense they've got less nasty in animal viruses but we can go down there because you know human viruses and animal viruses as well they may you know um, we, we can't really draw a lesson from that except to say that's a possibility but basically so far the virus hasn't changed significantly to make any really um, serious worries about the virus getting nasty, mm. but on the other hand, on the other hand, we can't rule that out because you know in evolution is a random process, can't predict it, and we have to be ready for it. But no sign of it happening yet in a year, which I suppose is you know reasonably good news. Yes, and does this vaccine work like a flu vaccine does? Because lots of people, of course, more than happy to get a flu vaccine. Um, Fewer people, it would seem, happy to get this one for lots of different reasons, which we can get into later on. But does it work differently, essentially, than a flu vaccine? Well, overall, basic, it's the same. You make antibodies you know, when you have both vaccines, which uh, and there are cells which also have a play role in the immune system as well in knocking off any cells that might be infected with the virus. Mm. Uh, but the antibodies, basically, they mop up the virus, they kill the virus. Well, they don't kill the virus, they neutralise it. You know, the virus is still there, but it, it, it's no longer active as, a, as an infectious agent. And it's the same with flu vaccine. And in fact, the, um, the vaccine that's being rolled out at the moment um, is probably on balance from the sort of scientific, theoretical point of view, safer than the flu vaccine. Um, uh, you know, the way it's made and, you know, it's a simpler vaccine and, you know, some flu vaccines are grown in eggs and so you can't give them to people who are sensitive to egg protein, all that kind of thing. So this, this vaccine is simpler than that, it's easier to make and it, it, because it's a, just that little bit of, of, of messenger RNA, um, you could say on, the, on balance it's safer, but safety really is nothing to do with the theory, it's to do with the practice. And this virus has been through extensive trials, more than 40,000 people in the trial, no problem safety-wise, um, you know, the odd sore arm, that kind of thing, which is what you get with flu vaccine. Mm. And, you know, most people <laughs> tolerate that quite well because, you know, the, the flu vaccine protects against really quite a nasty disease, not as well it's a different disease it affects different people yes it's well that's one of the things isn't it that's quite puzzling about it is the different ways in which it affects different people because i've not been able to see any pattern really i mean i know lots of people who have had covid uh, most of them have not had a terrible time with it but some of them have had a worse time than others that's right that's right i mean the biggest the biggest factor that determines whether you're going to have a hard time with the virus now is your age mm. and the older you are the worse the virus um, affects your organs and the more likely unfortunately you are to die from it so if you're if you're you know if you're under 60 hardly anybody has a hard time a few do and we could, we all know you know there all been a lot of publicity about people who've had a hard time uh, it's not it's not a trivial virus for everybody 
under under 60, but it generally speaking is. And younger people, um, you know, like university students, a lot of them got an enormous number of them got infected, but hardly any of them, as far as I know, were, were early enough even to see a doctor, never mind to go to yes. hospital. Well, that's what, and that's one of the things that that is has been has become a question in terms of you know how far down the the age ranges do you need to vaccinate because of course if you are in your twenties the chances of you getting coronavirus are probably reasonably high but the chances of you getting ill are pretty low. Yeah, I mean the, the vaccine is being used for two purposes at the moment. It's being rolled out for the elderly, people in care homes to protect them against the nasty effects of the virus. Mm. So it's protecting them individually. It's not going to make much difference to the spread of the virus because those folk, you know, they, the over 70s, the over 80s, 60s, and yeah, most of this over 70s and over 80s, and people in care, they're not buzzing around in the community going to raves and all right. that kind of stuff. Right. And, you know, sitting coughing their virus over people next to them in a restaurant or in a pub. They're people who are being protected by having the vaccine so that if they get infected, they won't have a hard time. And then once we've got through that lot of people, the vaccine then rules on to the younger mm. people. The aim of that is not to protect them so much, but to stop the virus basically in its tracks. So there'll be much less virus circulating in community. And if we get enough folk vaccinated in those age groups, it's sort of almost an altruistic thing. It's not being done necessarily very much for their personal protection. Mm. It's being done to protect the community at large. So we hope that they will accept the vaccine because it's a public good if they do, because that means there are fewer chances for the virus to infect people. The fewer, um, and the fewer people that uh, are infected, the less chance everybody else is of getting the virus. And w the hope is, of course, that the virus will get down to so le such low levels that we can go back to the old normal. Mm. Yes, and one would hope, perhaps, that by the time some people get around to being vaccinated, actually, it won't be required. Well, that may be. That may be. I mean, that, that would be a very, you know, quite an optimistic way forward. But, yeah, if we get the figures from the virus really down to penny numbers, or even let, you know, there's even a theoretical possibility we could see the virus off, you know, in terms of eradicating it. But nobody's really talking about that, because that really is pushing the optimism a bit too far. It's a possibility because this virus has got weaknesses. You know, not everybody who's infected uh, goes on to infect people. For example, you know, we have these super spreaders, a relatively small number of people, the ones who are spreading the virus, difficult to identify them. But if the vaccine stops them spreading the virus, the virus is going to have a very hard time indeed mm. in, in continuing to, you know, to be a threat to, to us. And we then might get into the sort of New Zealand situation where they managed to get rid of the virus altogether. Of course, they have very, very uh, much smaller number of cases yes. to start, but it was possible to them to do it through lockdown and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we're not in that lucky position. You know, there's far more, uh, there are far more cases about their spreading the virus uh, than 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 in, in but even China has managed to get rid of it as well by having basically very stringent lockdowns and putting people into these into these sort of refuge hospitals uh, instead of a late mm. alarm to self-isolate at home and all that kind of thing. We, we haven't gone down that road. No. Well, I think whatever happens, I'd rather live here than in China or indeed New Zealand, to be honest. But let's talk about uh, some questions that have come in. Ed sent in this to, to you, uh, Hugh. Um, he says, like me, thousands of others have had or tested positive for COVID. This is evidenced by an NHS email. Why could this not be based uh, or used as an alternative to having the vaccine uh, and the horrible idea of having a vaccine passport? Well, um, I, I to start with the vaccine passports, I wouldn't be in favour of those because, you know, we tried in, in the old days with smallpox, you could get a certificate saying you'd had the vaccine and all this kind of stuff. And a lot of quite a few people came into the UK with these uh, bits of paper and they were worthless um, because it said you would had the vaccine. but It didn't say whether you developed any immunity, mm. for example. And that would be a problem with 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 immunity passports and all that kind of stuff. But allowing the virus just to go on the rampage and infect a large number of the population without any serious effect has the side effect of infecting quite a lot of vulnerable people. Because not everybody who's um, you know under sixty has a, has an easy time with the virus, but the over sixties have a very hard time, and it's not a risk worth taking. Allowing the virus just to buzz around and hoping that you can shield the elderly because 
it hasn't worked terribly well in practice in care homes, for example. Well, it certainly didn't work. I'm told that the care home situation is a lot more improved now because they've taken much more and better precautions in the sense of PPE, of protection uh, and of testing as well. So hopefully that, that should be better. How about this one? Uh, could you ask Hugh, please, to elaborate on this pioneering mRNA vaccine? Can it be adapted to treat other diseases, viruses or even cancer? Yes, indeed. And this was this approach was developed actually to treat people with cancer, you know, to make um, make them make molecules which knock the cancer cells on the head. And that was what it was basically, and that's what it's been developed for. And it's been, of course, it was ready there as a scientific approach to um, uh, basically attack the coronavirus with great success. And I think some people were really quite surprised how successful this approach was. I mean, in theory, absolutely no reason why it shouldn't work. But until it had been tried against a virus, we didn't know whether it would work. We tried against a virus and the results really um, surprised, even, even the most optimistic people were surprised how well the protection uh, w w was engendered by, by this virus uh, vaccine, this messenger RNA vaccine. So it bodes well for other diseases other than just virus diseases. Um, as, a, as a, a way that's actually worked and been shown to work in practice. So, you know, that, that's one really piece of real piece of really good news that's come out of this, um, you know, horrible virus. Yeah. And, and it has uh, been absolutely horrible. What about um, the reason for having to have it twice? Because that's obviously one of the things that makes it different from a flu vaccine is that, you know, you have the first one, the people who have got it today for the first time will have to come back in three weeks or possibly four weeks for the second um, injection. Why does it need to be administered twice? I'm not absolutely certain exactly what the science behind that is, except that clearly with, with um, basically it's to stimulate the immune response you know, in in a big way. The first dose obviously stimulates the immune response and then the second adds very substantially to the immune response you make against the virus. And they, they obviously did early trials to find out what the best way of administering the vaccine was. And it turned out that you need these two doses, you know, three weeks apart in order to get the optimal uh, immune response, which develops another week after the second dose. So, you know, it, it's it's just what they found when they were doing the actual tests originally, that that was the best way of employing this vaccine. It, it's a nuisance because, generally speaking, with most vaccines, you just need the one shot. Uh, you sometimes need boosters with other vaccines, um, but, you know, usually a bit later than a couple of weeks, three weeks afterwards. Mm. That's the way it is, and you know you just have to live with that. It, it's a it's a it's a big nuisance for the people delivering the vaccination because it means that everybody who's had the first shot has to have a you know a reminder that they've got to come back in three weeks' time, and it means that you know each dose of the vaccine, uh, well, you, you need two doses for each person, which, which obviously reduces the supply of the vaccine that's available, and that's going to be the a big a big constraining factor on how many people mm. we can vaccinate because. You know, they're still making it as, as I speak now. They're still making the vaccine in in Belgium, the, the one that's being rolled out at the moment. Yes. And I see uh, this morning, Kate Bingham, who's the outgoing chair of the vaccine task force, is saying they may have in January some trials in which they mix and match the various different vaccines, because obviously they're expecting another another two along the, uh, the conveyor belt to be approved shortly. Um, and presumably that would help out if they've got three rather than just one. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because I, I think one of the big constraints about the vaccination program is, well, there are two really. One is, you know, the administration making sure that people are there to vaccinate and people who have been asked to come do come and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we've got the minus 70 degree refrigerator problem to work with. And so it is slightly more complicated, a good bit more complicated than the flu vaccination. But, but uh, if other vaccines get approved, and, um, you know, we can use them either as an alternative, well, not an alternative, but, you know, instead of, uh, or we can mix the two. You can get the first dose with one vaccine and the second with another. That might give very good results, but you have to do trials to find it out. You don't need to do 40,000 people trials. You can do quite, and I think the plan is to do quite small trials and we can test the antibody yeah. response to the vaccine. And how soon do you think, Hugh, before we start to notice the effect of the vaccinations? Well, I think um, my, my own guess is that we won't really see a big effect uh, until the spring next year, 
if we're lucky. Mm. It depends how many of these sort of altruistic, you know, recipients of the vaccine, the younger folk, uh, uh, you know, like the under 60s, how many of those we can vaccinate. We've got to do quite a number of those before we really start to see a, a big drop in the ability of the virus, uh, you know, to spread in the community. So until that happens, uh, and then of course, we'll still have controls like, you know, mask wearing and, and better social distancing and, well, you know, what impact, uh, you know, it's got to have on the ability to have public gatherings, concerts and, and you know, going to restaurants and pubs. That's going to be a very difficult judgment for the policymakers, you know, when they can relax uh, and, and basically, um, you know, one can't make any serious predictions about that except to say that I think there will be controls on until at least as at the earliest towards the end of spring probably um, and and you know that that's going to be a nuisance for, for everybody who's affected by it but on the other hand we just want to get the virus get rid of the bloody virus uh, yeah well that would be nice wouldn't it absolutely right thank you very much indeed professor Hugh Pennington emeritus professor of bacteriology at Aberdeen University we've got much more to do including more of your calls of course 0344 499 1000 Gary uh, says this hi Mike love the show why are you not mentioning the reported breaches of COVID rules by Kay Burley and Beth Rigby well because it's not really that important of a story is it I mean you know does anybody really care what Kay Burley does? I mean, I personally don't think uh, that the rules that are in place are particularly sensible rules in the first place. Lots of people are getting worked up about the fact that, that Kay Burley and Beth Rigby went out for dinner and then went out for some more dinner and then went to the toilet and then went home or something else like that. You know, let's face it, we're not talking about Rita Ora here. She's not that famous. She's a newsreader uh, who appears on Sky Television, which hardly anybody watches. It's as simple as that. But she may well feature in Plank of the Week. You'll just have to wait and see. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now, we often talk about good news on this show and we often say that we're one of the few outlets that actually procures good news for you to keep, to keep you happy, uh, to make sure that you're not feeling full of doom and gloom. And I have to say uh, that the Daily Star once again, has managed to crack it. One of the best front pages they've done. A uh, picture of a guy on the front of it uh, in his underwear, uh, eating crisps, eating hamburgers with a pint of beer, saying, Lazy, I'm saving the bleeding planet, Doreen. Uh, 2020 apparently has come up with some great news. Boozing and munching crisps could actually save the planet. Now, obviously, uh, with our tongue slightly in our cheek, uh, we're going to check in uh, with our favourite lifestyle guru, Christopher Snowden, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Christopher, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, this is great news as we head into the Christmas season, isn't it? Because, I mean, I'm not a massive fan of crisps, actually. It might come as a surprise to you to learn. But but people tend to eat more of them at Christmas time, don't they? 
Yeah, people tend to eat more of everything at Christmas time. <laughs> yeah, very true. I mean, this is obviously a, a bit of a, a promo for Walker's Crisps, uh, who have basically announced that what they're going to do uh, is to p- get, produce some kind of production process, which means that they can slash their emissions by 70%. Um, we hear all the time about people saying that we've got to get to net zero, which is not something I'm particularly in favour of. Um, but this has got to be, if, if people can be convinced that this is going to save the planet, uh, is this a new and possibly good avenue to go down? Well, it's carbon capture, which is the least uh, kind of disruptive method of trying to reduce your carbon emissions because right. it means you don't have to change your lifestyle as much. Right. You just you know, get rid of the carbon in some other way. The problem with carbon capture is that there's hardly any of it. It's just an idea for the most part. Mm. Boris mm. Johnson is betting heavily on lots of new carbon capture technologies coming around. But at the moment, it's a very, very small part of the picture. So in this instance, we've got two... Uh, wonderful products, beer and crisps, um, aligning together. So the um, the waste products from the beer is, are mixed with the waste products from the crisps, we should say the potato waste, and um, that combines to make fertilizer, which is then put on the ground to grow new potatoes or indeed new anything else. And that's not only um, uh, net zero, apparently it could even lead to a reduction in carbon emissions overall now i'm not a scientist i don't know how it works or if it does work or if it's just a gimmick but that's the basic idea yes i mean maybe what it does i mean although this is a kind of a a tongue-in-cheek story as i say um it might actually lead to some more education about this whole idea of net zero because there's clearly other than you know going after motorists all the time and going after people uh, who happen to have gas central heating you know go after some of the bigger corporations go after some of the manufacturing companies whose whose carbon footprint is probably hugely higher than anything that you and i would do yeah, I mean, there's a kind of nexus there insofar as what people do, you know, they're buying from a shop and ultimately there's going to be an industry producing that good. So I don't know if you can necessarily blame the corporations per se for providing what people want. Uh, but certainly a lot of these corporations are very keen to get involved with the whole net zero thing yeah. and, and show, show willing. And I'm sure there are lots of clever technologies around. I'm still very sceptical about the kind of targets that the government's put yeah. forward. Oh, yeah, me too. No, totally. Don't, I mean, and also, don't don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that companies should be penalised for producing things that people want. What I'm saying is, is that what they can do uh, is to efficient make make their production lines more efficient uh, and therefore greener. Well, not necessarily more efficient. Hopefully, more efficient, but certainly greener. Yeah, I mean, this stuff does generally speaking cost money. You might find a kind of virtuous circle in some of it. This might be one of them. You know, using waste productively is very efficient you know it's the best thing you can be doing so if there are you know a thousand things like this that can reduce carbon emissions then maybe it's not going to be such a problem but it's a that's a big if yeah well it is a big if i mean my personal view of the the green industrial revolution that boris johnson's been pushing is that it's unachievable anyway and they'll never actually get to the point where they want to get to and the idea that everybody everybody's going to put in a heat pump into their house for fifteen thousand quid instead of uh, just sticking with their gas central heating uh, is an absolute joke and today i see there's a piece in the mail uh, which is basically saying that uh, the tires on uh, electric cars are so polluting um, that they should actually be suffering they should be given a higher level of road tax than regular petrol and diesel cars right i haven't seen that story but yeah there's so many unintended consequences of this on the gas boilers you're absolutely right i mean that's one of the biggest things that apparently needs to be done to achieve net zero the government wants to do it really over the course of the next nine or ten years yeah um, yeah it's enormously expensive who's actually going to pay for this right. and even the electric vehicle stuff which a lot of people would say well that's a kind of a positive development because it reduces air pollution as well these vehicles are pretty good yeah they're quite expensive now but the second hand market might sort that out the amount of electricity that needs to be generated to power them is enormous i gather we're looking at something like a trebling in overall energy yeah uh, production required to fuel these electric vehicles and you need to put the um the charges everywhere you're going to need to charge it pretty much outside everyone's house right. the the amount of money and the amount of resources required to get us anywhere near net zero are absolutely enormous and it's all right for politicians to just sign up on some um you know some agreement or some promise which they won't be around for in the you know, in 2050 when um we, we see what the results are mm. but the actual practical 
and cost elements in this are just almost off the scale. Oh, they really are. And that's before you start factoring in uh, all the cobalt mining that has to be done by people uh, in very, very poor countries, quite often underage children having to be sent down mines to be toxic, uh, to, to be exposed to all sorts of toxic materials. So, I mean, you know, it is by no means a very clear uh, and, and, and obvious path to virtuousness, is it? Yeah, we need to have a grown-up conversation about this. Now the government has committed itself, supposedly illegally, to doing this. We need to have a serious conversation. How are we going to do it? What's it going to cost? What are the unintended consequences? And we don't get that. We just get virtue signaling from politicians. First it was Ed Miliband, then it was Theresa May, now it's Boris Johnson. It just goes on and on. And, you know, time ticks on. It's only nine years until 2030, by which time we're supposed to reduce our carbon emissions Mm. by 68%. I know. I mean, there's a limit to how much we can export (laughs) our heavy industry. Well, which is how we've got where we are so far. Well, there really is. And also, here's another story for you which caught my eye today, and I don't know what you make of this, but in China, they've just unveiled um, a brand new sort of nuclear power station, right? It's called the HL2M Tokamak Nuclear Fusion Reactor. It actually gets hotter than the sun, right? Uh, apparently, it heats um, uh, temperatures of up to 150 million degrees Celsius. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound uh, like a recipe for success to me. I don't know about the technology. I mean, if it's nuclear, then good on them. It's a lot better for, in terms of climate change than, than coal or gas. Um, but we do need to be doing this internationally. We could do, I think, we're building a few more nuclear power stations. We're going to need to if we're going to be uh, powering all these electric cars. But we also need to do it internationally. There's yeah. no point in the UK with 1% of carbon emissions going this alone and hoping naively that Brazil and India and Russia and China are just going to follow in our footsteps. They're not they're going to take the competitive advantage. They're going to take our industry and they're going to carry on using the cheapest technologies. This stuff has to be done through international agreement. Yes. I mean, unfortunately, the, the, the only business of nuclear reactor building seems to be being done either by the French or by the Chinese. So I suppose there's always going to be a bit of reticence in this country, uh, allowing that kind of super infrastructure to be built um, by people from other countries. Well, I mean, you're going to have to suck it up, really, because without nuclear power, you're not going to get anywhere near this target. We were not going to do it through, you know, Walker's crisps um, <laughs> and here and, and these little small steps. Yeah. We need the power. We need to create an enormous amount of electricity. And we can, apparently are not allowed to do that through fracking. We can't do it through natural gas. Mm. We can't do it through oil or coal. So where, what does that leave us? We can't do it with wind turbines. No, we certainly can't. But, I mean, it's interesting. They don't mention nuclear power very much, do they? Almost as if they're frightened of the words. Yeah, the government's got something against it. I mean, it is true that it is very expensive to set up in the first place, as a Hinkley Point thing um, kind of proved. I don't think we have anything to fear by employing the French to build nuclear power stations. And the French have done very well over the years for nuclear power stations. We've done very well over the years for nuclear power stations. But the Green Lobby... Um, who who, some of them have softened on nuclear power over the years because they can see it's the only way actually to reduce carbon emissions significantly. The Dream Lobby, of course, in the 60s and 70s were totally against nuclear power and there remains this kind of taboo and stigma and fear about it. Yes, there really does. You still see those old stickers on the back of cars, don't you, that used to be the uh, uh, the, the ones that were in German as well as everything yeah, else. Nine Danker. Yeah. Nine Danker, exactly right. Well, Christopher, listen, I hope we'll speak before Christmas, and if not, have a great one. Um, eat as many crisps and drink as much beer as you like, I think is the message from uh, uh, from the papers this morning. Christopher Snowden, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. There is a serious point to the story, of course, and that is um, that if there is this kind of drive uh, to try and get the country greener, which I personally couldn't care less about actually um why is it only the motorists that they're going after and the people who have gas central heating why don't they go after some of the big production companies some of the big producers uh, of some of the worst pollutants in the country and get them to go green first and then we'll see where we are after that oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand is the number we're going to talk about scotland coming up because believe it or not yesterday queen nicola sturgeon as she likes to be known uh, was trying to stop the royal family from visiting scotland which they apparently own half of anyway. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's have a word with Daniel Hannan. I think I said Birmingham instead of Buckingham. You know, it's going to be... It hasn't been one of those days. I don't think I've made that many mistakes today, unusually. And it is only Tuesday, of course. Wednesday, uh, Prime Minister's Questions tomorrow. Plank of the Week coming up later on. Uh, We've got lots of, lots of nominations for that. Let's talk to Daniel Hannan, though, to find out what he makes of it all. Daniel, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Nice to join you. Yeah, nice to speak to you again. We haven't spoken for a while. I mean, I must find myself agreeing with Douglas Murray today, saying uh, in his piece in The Sun that basically um, 
The EU is the problem here. It's not that Boris Johnson um, is trying to appease everybody else. Uh, it's not that Boris Johnson is trying to make sure he keeps his backbenchers happy at the same time uh, as making sure he gets a deal of some kind. You know, the EU could have made this easier, couldn't they? I think that point would be obvious to everyone if it weren't for the fact that there is a group of people in Britain who were so kind of embittered after the referendum that they are now determined to blame everything on Britain and never blame the EU. Mm. I think if you're looking at it as a neutral, you just have to look at how the talks have unfolded. Remember that Theresa May tried to get a much closer deal, which would have uh, given Brussels much of what it's now uh, claiming is so important in terms of following their laws, uh, copying all of their rules on the environment and labor standards and so on. And they threw that back in her face. Uh, the, the Salzburg summit, they said, absolutely not. And, and Michel Barnier had this chart, you'll remember having seen it, like right. it was like a, a staircase. And it said, you know, if you don't want to be in the single market, then your only option is a Canada deal. Right. And of course, when the moment that Boris said, okay, thank you very much, then I'll have that, it was suddenly snatched away. No, 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 we can't have a Canada deal because you're too close and you're too big. And you, we, we, and do you know what? I, I actually don't think this is about trade, right? Mm. We, we, we've been doing trade deals around the place with very few problems, and so is the EU. Uh, and in none of them does this issue arise of we want continuing supervision of your standards in perpetuity, let alone we want to plunder some of your resources. I think the reason that the EU is treating Britain very differently from the way it's treated Japan or Canada or Korea or any other country that it's done trade deals with is because deep down it is struggling to let go. It's still the imperial power trying to deal with a renegade province and trying to assert some kind of continuing suzerainty or sovereignty mm. or control so that we, so that they don't have to face the fact that we've, we've truly become an independent country. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's an ideological chasm now which can never really be breached. I was listening to an interview uh, with the deputy leader of the European Union, uh, Heidi somebody or other, who's a green M MEP from uh, from Germany. And she was saying, you know, this whole idea of, of Britain on the global stage is outdated, it's outmoded, it's not something that they should be trying to do because everybody now knows that cooperation and big organisations is the future. Well, I'm sorry. Actually, the people of this country decided that was not the future. Uh, and as I've often said to people, who knows how much bigger the EU would have tried to get if we hadn't left? Yeah, I mean, I think that's very telling. I mean, first, first of all, I think that's wrong, right? If, if being part of a big block were necessary uh, for your prosperity, then China would be richer than Hong Kong mm. and Indonesia would be richer than Singapore. Uh, and for that matter, the EU would be richer than Switzerland, right? Yeah. So it, 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 what, what matters is getting your tax and regulations right and, and so on. But in terms of, uh, uh, of what that reveals about the EU's attitude, I think it's very telling. Uh, what's bothering them is the idea of a wholly independent Britain sitting next to them as a sovereign country. And, you know, I mean, this can be difficult. I mean, to, 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 to be fair, I, th I think Britain, you know, 100 years ago was going through a similar difficult process of psychological adjustment when Ireland became independent. Mm. And, and uh, following... Uh, the, the war and, and Irish independence, the, the, the British government at that time spent a lot of, uh, of energy trying to kind of say, well, you've still got to swear an oath of allegiance to the crown and we've still got to have some sort of token, you know, treaty yes. or token fiscal trend. And it, it wasn't really that these things made any difference on the ground. It was that they were trying to salvage the idea that, uh, you know, there hadn't been a complete breakaway. And the EU is going through, it took us a generation, and the EU, I think, is going through a similar process of psychological adjustment. Yes, I think that's right, because it's interesting, isn't it, that you say it's not about individual trade, because it is almost as though they want us to have to ask for everything um, uh, so that, you know, we cannot make any independent conversations take place and we cannot really have any proper rights of our own. But do you worry that Boris Johnson is not going to go full pelt on this? And do you worry that, that he will disappoint sort of Brexiteers who expect him to, to if, he not, if he's not happy, walk away? No, I'm not in the least bit worried. I have absolute confidence in the position that Boris has staked out, and I know he'll stick to it. Yeah. And I wouldn't overstate this, but I, I know enough of David Frost's views, our chief negotiator, uh, to know that his fundamental assumptions and objectives going into this are the right ones. I mean, at least from, from my perspective. Yes. So, you know what's going to happen, whether there's a deal or not, whatever the, the news is 48 hours from now, 
everyone is going to be pronouncing before they've had a chance to read it or digest what has happened. Uh, and, and that, you know, we, 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 we've both worked in the media. We know that that's, that's the dynamic. But I would just say in advance, I, I know enough of the, the people involved, enough of Boris and of the negotiating team to trust them to have come to the right judgment. If they choose to walk away, it will be for a good reason. If they decide on balance to sign a deal, again, that will be for a good reason. Yeah, and as you've said earlier, I think the whole point of, of all of this is that this time next year we'll be standing here or sitting here having a similar conversation uh, without an awful lot really having changed. We will have left the European Union, but we won't be starving. You know, we won't be waiting for medicines that are stuck in Calais uh, because we somehow can't get them across the channel. You know, our lives will not be substantially altered effectively, as far as I'm concerned. But also there will always be a kind of continuous and an ongoing conversation with the EU about all manner of things, presumably. Yeah, well, I mean, you say that. I was actually thinking slightly whimsically the other day that <laughs> on one level, all of these Remainer predictions came true in the sense that, you know, we can't travel, you know, our GDP has taken a huge hit uh, and indeed there's been a plague of locusts. Um, yes. But I don't think any of those are because of Brexit. No, I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it's very striking to me how easily this could have been done had there been just a smidgen of goodwill. Mm. And the proof of that for me is the deal that we've got with Switzerland, where, you know, Switzerland is is largely in the single market. So doing the, the, the deal we've done with Switzerland is, is replicating most of what we were talking about with the EU. Yeah. You know, it took us a few weeks to negotiate that because basically the Swiss and we sat down and said, are you happy to carry on? Yep. You happy to carry on? Yep. Fine. You know, that's and, and starting as we were from a position of identical regulations, it should have been a fairly straightforward process. And indeed, the trade and economic bits have been very straightforward. Mm. But the, the, the problem has come because the EU is making these extraneous demands that it doesn't make of any other country on issues like fisheries, supervision of our standards and so on. And, and in the end, only they can decide whether they want to deal. But I, I would just make one more point, if I may, Mike, which is, yeah. you know, in this whole debate, this curious idea has been slipping in that somehow, you know, countries trade with one another out of kindness you know why should the eu give us mm. a trade deal unless we're prepared to give it? you know i mean do, do people really think that trade is an act of generosity of course it isn't it, it's it's an act pursued for the enrichment of your own people mm. your own consumers uh, and the benefit of your own exchequer and if the eu in the end wants to cut off its nose to spite its face, wants to pay an economic price, provided that we pay one as well, we can't stop them making that judgment. I hope that they will look uh, to what is the, the mutual benefit of both sides of the channel. You know, we, we both have an interest in having rich neighbours and, and good trading partners and in maintaining the Western alliance. But in the end, that's their call rather than ours. Well, exactly right. But also their calls are not as universal as they would like to think that they are either. I mean, it's almost interesting to me, you were talking about uh, the Remainers and terrible warnings and all of that. All the people who say, you know, fishing is not really important to Britain. It's a very small part of our GDP. It's just a totemic kind of, you know, badge of honour for Boris Johnson to defend and it doesn't matter. Well, if it doesn't matter, why are the French and the Dutch uh, so worked up about how it turns out. It obviously does matter to them. And the idea that they can sort of come to us and say, you know, uh, we might give you back some of your own fishing rights uh, that you gave us a few dozen years ago, you know, it's laughable. And also the idea they're going to go to somehow uh, the French uh, champagne producers uh, as the EU and say, you must not sell any champagne to the UK unless you charge it up by another 50% or something. It's a nonsense, isn't it? Well, it, that is the, the second of those is, is certainly nonsense because it's up to us whether we charge tariffs on imports. And I think it would be a mistake uh, across the board to do that, whether you're looking at, at straight imports like that, buying champagne or whether it's uh, components for, for production lines here or whatever. I, I, you know, we, we, we don't need anyone's permission to lower our tariffs. And I, I believe we should be doing it across the board mm. and vis-a-vis -vis the whole world, including the EU. But on, on fisheries, I mean, you know, I think it's a really good point that you make. The, the, we want what every country in the world takes for granted, which is control of our own maritime resources. Every state in the world has sovereignty over its own marine resources. Now, having established that principle, we can afford to be quite generous about the terms and conditions of, of access. Because mm. frankly, after half a century in the common fisheries policy, nearly half a century, we don't have anything like the capacity to land all the fish 
that would now come within our waters. There right. isn't a major fishing port, you know, between uh, Peter's Head and Plymouth, right? So, so if we do a deal, we can be quite generous about quotas, about transitions, in a way that almost every other country allows foreign vessels into its waters, provided it's understood that that is their call, that, that, that it's their resources and they can kind of lease access to others. And if, if that doesn't happen, and this is what makes the, the French position so bewildering, if there is no deal, then instead of having a partial and phased reduction in their catch, not a, not a, a total exclusion, not a drop to zero, but some reduction in their catch, the French really would have a total exclusion from our waters tomorrow. Mm. Right? Uh, and the idea, therefore, that this is really about the, the, their fishermen is totally bogus. This is much more about teaching us a lesson, as they see it. Yes. As Michel Barnier said at the beginning, you know, I'm going to have to school the British in, in what Brexit actually means. And, and I think there's that lingering resentment, which even now is making it very difficult for the EU to come to a deal. Yes, I mean, some of the things that were being said by this Heidi woman as well were, were rather amusing in as much as the, uh, the, the the advent of the Brexit Party MEPs who went over to Brussels and kind of refused to sing the, the Ode to Joy and turned their backs on all sorts of things. And, you know, she was bemoaning the fact that that was terribly rude um, and that actually, you know, they never really belonged there in the first place. And it's all very sort of cultish, it seems to me. I mean, you've spent time uh, in the European Parliament in Brussels when you were an MEP. I mean, it seems as though there's not a lot of room for dissent there. No, I mean, it was the, the the funny thing was, it's supposed to be a representative assembly, uh, and yet they hated it when it was at all representative. In other <laughs> words, when it admitted views that, that differed right. from that. On, on, I mean, it was, I suppose it was representative on sort of left-right issues, but it was obligatory to be in favour of a federal Europe. Yes. And, you know, I mean, it, had there been a little bit more flexibility on that at any point, you know, had David Cameron come back with any retrieval of power, as late as February 2016, I think he'd have probably won. Yeah. But what tipped the country into voting leave was this sense that even when faced with the loss of their second biggest member, the EU was still not prepared to concede any return of, of power to the national level. And I think there was a real sense in, in I, I can remember it very well, being on the campaign trail at that time, a lot of people were saying, well, hang on, if this is how they're treating us now before we've even voted, how are they going to treat us if we vote to remain? Yes. Now, if that was why people voted leave, and I think that was a big issue for the people who were weighing it up until the last minute, they've been completely vindicated. Because since the referendum, rather than saying, oh, you know, maybe we, maybe we could have done this differently. Maybe we were a little bit too centralizing, too ambitious, too remote. Maybe, you know, maybe other countries will have similar concerns. Maybe we should try and address those. Maybe we should try and decentralize a little bit. On the contrary, the, the Eurocrats have said, oh, fabulous, the Brits have left, full steam ahead. Now we can have our European ta tax system and our European army and our Euro bonds and all the rest of it. So, you know, the, the EU is, if you like, doubling down on this political union and good luck to them right it's no longer going to be our problem we're not members anymore we should wish them well but it does explain why it was necessary for britain if it wanted to remain an independent sovereign country to take a different and it also, I think, highlights the fact that they will be a much less potent force without Britain. And they will worry that other countries will watch what happens and may wish to follow uh, Britain's lead. And they may see perhaps the end of the great European federalist dream, because suddenly, the, as you say, the, the, you know, the biggest contributor to it doesn't want any part of it. I mean, I, th I think that is, for some of them, they've said this openly, that is the worry about Brexit, that um, if unless they make it as painful as possible, you know, the Dutch or the Danes or the Swedes or somebody else might want to follow. Mm. And that in itself is a very telling argument, isn't it? Because if the benefits of EU membership were so clear and obvious, as we're always being told in Brussels, then you wouldn't need to punish a country for leaving, right? Because leaving would be its own punishment. Yes, of course. And, and the attitude that they've had, you know, Michel Barnier, at the start of the talks, said to the other leaders, my job is to offer the Brits such a hard deal that they'll wish they voted to stay. Mm. And you think, you know, a, 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 a group of nations that has to threaten members to stop them leaving, but that's not a club, that's a protection racket. Yeah. And I wonder, actually, funnily enough, whether they won't fail in their own terms and prompt other people to start thinking about walking out simply because they've been so unreasonable. Yes, and they'll miss the money too, let's not forget. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, the... Uh, 
every budget has been blown out of the water by the events <laughs> of the past 10 True. months. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're all... The, the, the difference between the best and worst Brexit scenarios is suddenly trivial compared to what we're spending every week on these, uh, you know, quantitative easing and, mm. and the, the furlough scheme and all the rest of it. Uh, again, you'd think all the more reason why at a time like this you should try and maximize where you can the economic benefits of trade uh, and it is extraordinary i think to a lot of people and certainly to a lot of foreign observers that i've, I've been talking to uh, recently that the eu is still putting politics before economics and saying even if it makes us worse off even if we have to pay a price even if our people suffer you know higher unemployment and slower growth mm. we would still rather do that than have to watch a post-EU Britain succeed. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Daniel, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Daniel Hannan uh, talking to us there, Telegraph columnist, a visiting professor at the University of Buckingham, member of the UK Board of Trade as well. Uh, sounding very bullish, I would have to say, uh, on the prospects of Boris Johnson emerging from these talks in Brussels uh, as the victor, whether or not there is a deal, uh, whatever it is that is happening in Brussels clearly is being uh, orchestrated by uh, the European Union, being orchestrated by Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, she is not somebody who wants to see Britain leaving the European Union. They would still, I'm sure, any, bet you any money uh, if Boris went over there and said, I'll tell you what, you know what, maybe we'll just stay. They would love that. They would absolutely love it. Uh, we, of course, would not absolutely love it. And that would be the death knell for Boris Johnson's prime ministership. But that ain't going to happen. But we will bring you, uh, of course, every development as it does happen when Boris Johnson does go to Brussels, which might be tomorrow afternoon. Uh, it may be Thursday. We shall see. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.